You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. Ben Golliver from the Washington Post wrote this morning or late last night about this Kevin Durant documentary which airs tonight on Showtime called Basketball County in the Water about the history of basketball in Prince George's County. PG County's produced more NBA players than any other county in the country. Ben Golliver will join us a little bit later on in the show. Ben's really good, by the way, on the NBA as well. Um, It should be a good conversation. We're going to get to the Quentin Dunbar story. Um, Pepper Rogers passed away. You know, Pepper Rogers was nearly a coach for the Washington Redskins back in the year 2000. Uh, We will talk about his uh, input into the early Snyder days. And also, Dwayne Haskins getting into shape. More on that coming up um, in a moment. Uh, But whether you're down on your luck or just down because you're stuck, you can find relief with MyBookie. That's MyBookie.ag, where there's never a quarantine on fun. Now, there's a UFC card this weekend if you want to bet on that. Um, there, You can bet on just about every anything having to do with the UFC card. And a lot of you may not be interested in that, but may be interested in all of the prop bets that are available at MyBookie, including a lot of you know political prop bets. But the NFL prop bets, the Super Bowl odds are up, the over-unders on season totals are up, regular season MVP odds um, are up, you know, defensive rookie of the year where Chase Young is the favorite, offensive rookie of the year. Um, all of the prop bets for the NFL season in 2020 are up there, and you can start looking at them. It's a great site to go to to just get the odds. But right now at my bookie, you've got a couple of opportunities. Number one is they're giving out a risk-free bet up to $49. Right? It's can't miss. They're just saying, hey, here's a $49 bet. Make it on anything you want. You know, if you lose, you don't owe us anything. It's $49. That's it. But if you use my promo code KevinDC, my bookie will match your deposit halfway, all the way up to $1,000. So if you put in, you know, 500 bucks to start the account, you'll end up with 750 in your account because they'll give you $250 for free. Mybookie.ag. It is a reliable site to wager on. If you're going to delve into this world of gambling, you know, be be careful, number one. Um, you know, take baby steps until you figure out what you're doing. Um, but you want to find a place that's reliable where if you win, you'll get paid, and mybookie.ag is that place. All right, um, let's start with this just incredible story that broke last night on Quentin Dunbar and DeAndre Baker, um, two players in the NFL. Obviously, we know who Quentin Dunbar is. Quentin Dunbar um, was traded just about a month ago to Seattle. You know, I was sitting here arguing that, you know, the Redskins didn't get enough of fifth rounder. Now it looks like one of the great trades in franchise history. Um, But the best details of what happened, per usual, came courtesy of TMZ. TMZ, I don't think, I don't necessarily know if they broke this story late yesterday afternoon, um, but they had most of the details of the story late yesterday afternoon. And it reads as follows Two NFL players, including a 2019 first round draft pick, and that would be DeAndre Baker. DeAndre Baker, a cornerback, 
um, out of uh, out, out of Georgia last year. It was drafted 30th overall um, by the Giants. First round pick in 2019. DeAndre Baker and Quentin Dunbar were involved in an armed robber, robbery, allegedly. Baker's facing four charges of armed robbery and four charges of aggravated assault with a firearm. Uh, Quentin Dunbar is facing four counts of just armed robbery, not the aggravated assault. TMZ described apparently what happened, or allegedly what happened. According to police, the two men were partying in Miramar, Florida on May 13th, which was Wednesday night, when things took a disturbing turn. Cops say Baker and Dunbar were allegedly hanging out at a cookout playing cards and playing video games when an argument broke out and Baker whipped out a semi-automatic firearm. Cops say the men began to rob the party guests, with Dunbar assisting in taking watches and other valuables at the direction of Baker. At one point, cops say Baker directed a third man who was wearing a red mask to shoot someone who had just walked into the party, but fortunately, nobody was shot. Law enforcement uh, let uh, TMZ know anyway that they made out with $7,000 in cash along with several valuable watches um, and that there are conflicting reports, by the way, on Dunbar as to whether or not he was armed or not. Some witnesses said yes, others said no. One witness told police that they had met Baker and Dunbar at a party a few days earlier in Miami, at which this witness said the players lost around $70,000 in cash in a high-stakes card game and other forms of gambling. Um, And the witnesses said they were gambling again on Wednesday night when the argument broke out. Baker allegedly flipped a table and busted out his weapon. According to police, some people at the party believed it was a planned robbery because when the three men were done taking valuables, there were three getaway cars strategically positioned to, quote, expedite an immediate departure, closed quote. The alleged getaway cars, according to a witness, were sick. A Lamborghini, a Mercedes-Benz, and a BMW. Uh, The warrants for the two players' arrests have been issued. Now, one of the surprising things about this story is yesterday, which would have been the uh, the day after this incident took place, Quentin Dunbar held his introductory Zoom conference call with local Seahawk reporters. Now, he was in Florida on video on the call, um, and he said um, that uh, he wanted... The, the, one of the reasons he was excited to be in Seattle was that, quote, you just want to feel wanted at the end of the day. I just hope to be able to repay them with the way I carry myself as a person, closed quote. So Dunbar, you know, wanted to get traded, uh, really mouthed off a lot um, after Rivera was hired, and they apparently ignored him with respect to his contract request for a new contract, then he wanted to be traded, then he didn't want to be traded. They finally traded him, and they got a fifth rounder from Seattle. Now, the day of the trade, I was like, not enough for Quentin Dunbar. Quentin Dunbar can play a little bit. Now, he's missed games. We know that. He's missed a lot of games the last two years. I thought he was going to be a perfect fit in Seattle. And, you know, these are alleged at this point. Um, But if true, he's going to jail. 
You know, if he if if, if this were uh, if these charges end up being true, um, Quentin Dunbar, you know, it's going to be a long time before he has a chance to play in the NFL again, if ever. Um, the conversations that I've had with a few people, um, actually since the radio show ended earlier, is that this wasn't a case of the Redskins not wanting Quentin Dunbar back because they thought he was capable of something like this. You know, the people that know Quentin Dunbar you know, I'm not so sure that they thought, you know, he was the greatest dude of all time, but nobody that I talked to prior to this podcast beginning said that they would have ever expected Quentin Dunbar to be a part of something like this. They didn't, they didn't think he was this kind of person. Again, these are allegations, but if proven true. So I think that many, um, or at least those that I talked to that would be, you know, at least three quarters of the way in the know are surprised at this. Um, but anyway, there you go on Quentin Dunbar. Pepper Rogers passed away um, yesterday at the age of 88 years old. Um, for those of you that don't know who Pepper Rogers was, Pepper Rogers, for starters, was a very good college football coach. A very good college football coach. Pepper Rogers coached at Kansas, he coached at UCLA, and he coached at Georgia Tech. Won a lot of games, was a colorful you know, character, great storyteller. He ended up being uh, the head coach of the Memphis Showboats in the uh, 1970s. Uh, I'm sorry, 1980s in the USFL. Um, uh, was there uh, and uh, coached in the CFL as well. But his coaching career, when he was the head coach in Kansas, he coached the Riggins brothers. He coached John's older brother, who was a much better baseball player and ended up becoming a professional baseball player. And he coached John Riggins at the University of Kansas as well. And then he ended up becoming the coach at UCLA. And my first memory of Pepper Rogers was him as the Georgia Tech coach um, in, uh, in the 1970s, you know, the mid to late 70s. Georgia Tech, you know, they've had various you know, runs in college football. Bobby Ross, you know, uh, basically shared a national championship with Georgia Tech back in 1990, I think it was. Um, but uh, he was he was a, a figure. He was a known, you know, college football guy. Um, he then got involved with the Redskins. Uh, he was in, in, in Dan Snyder in particular, and he became the vice president of football operations for the Redskins from 2001 through 2004. He took that job after Marty Schottenheimer was fired at the end of the 2001 season. He was also considered for the head coaching position when Norv Turner got fired. Now, the the history of this, and I'm going to do my best to sort of remember it without looking up a bunch of stories from the past, but when Dan Snyder finally got ownership, he didn't want Norv Turner to be the coach. You know, he wanted to start from scratch, but it was really too late by the time he got control of the team in 1999 to do anything about Norv Turner. You know, there are reports and there's been discussion over the years that he tried to undo the Brad Johnson trade with Minnesota, that he didn't want Brad Johnson. Well, fortunately, uh, it turned out that 
that was a good trade. The Redskins went to the playoffs that year, and Brad Johnson threw for over 4,000 yards in that particular season. Um, but the, uh, the Pepper Rogers, when Norv got fired at the end of the 2000 season, you know, when Terry Rabisky ended up taking over for those final few games, when the Redskins were still 7-6, and six, by the way, and still alive in, in the playoff hunt, um, that particular season, but you know they had missed a couple of of field goals. Eddie Murray, God bless him, told Norv he couldn't kick a forty six yard field goal, and they put him out there anyway um, against the Giants. He missed the field goal. They lost the game nine to seven. Their record fell to seven and six, and Norv got fired the next day. And Pepper Rogers was the guy that Norv wanted to hire as not only the interim coach, but potentially as the coach of the team in 2001. But the two coordinators at the time, Terry Rabisky and Ray Rhodes in particular, who was the defensive coordinator, my memory is that is that Ray Rhodes essentially threatened to quit if Pepper Rogers got the job. Neither one of them was happy that Norv was getting fired with three games left. But if my memory serves me correctly, Ray Rhodes um, didn't want the interim job, didn't want Norv to be fired, and said that if they hire Pepper Rogers, he's going to quit, essentially. Um, Snyder sort of backed off the hiring of Pepper Rogers at that point and made Terry Rabisky, or as Dion called him, Terry Rabinsky, uh, made Terry Rabisky the interim head coach for those final three games. Um, and then, you know, prior to 2001, Pepper Rogers was considered to be a candidate for the job to replace Norv Turner or Terry Rubisky at that point. You know, there were other guys like Butch Davis from Miami was a, a potential ca- candidate for that job going into, into 2001. I'm forgetting who else was was in the mix. Um, you know, there was always discussion of Parcells or Gibbs, but Parcells wasn't going to come work for Snyder. But Marty Schottenheimer did. You know, Marty Schottenheimer did come in 2001. And Certainly we know that story. To me, still the single biggest mistake of the Dan Snyder era was firing Marty Schottenheimer at the end of an 8-8 eight and eight, uh, regular season start. Um, was just a massive mistake. Marty went 8-3 and three down the stretch with Tony Banks and Kent Graham at quarterback and had that thing going in the right direction. But, you know, Dan didn't want, you know, Marty to have total control Marty demanded total control, which is the way you have to do it here, as we know. I don't know that we knew it then. Marty knew it then. Marty knew that he needed total control over the operation in 2001, or he wasn't going to take the job, and it wasn't going to work. And he had total control. He had uh, was the head of football operations in addition to being the head coach, and Dan and Fred Drasner and the rest of them weren't having any fun. You know, he kicked Vinny basically out of the building. He took Fred Drasner's parking spot away from him. I mean, Marty was a dictator. He was a dictator. Um, but Marty won everywhere he went. And at the end of that season, you know, Dan's quote, you know, uh, and I may be paraphrasing to a certain degree, was, you know, I like Marty, and, and Marty did a great job, but, you know, we weren't involved and we weren't having any fun. Um, and he, you know, he wants to do everything by himself and we want to be involved and we weren't having any fun. So that was that. And obviously the next move was to hire 
Steve Spurrier, um, which we know what happened there. Um, but yeah, Pepper Rogers could have not only become the interim coach, but it was possible that he had a chance if if Dan doesn't get uh, Marty to be the head coach. Now, I, I don't think that would have gone well, and no disrespect. And and Pepper Rogers was, you know, by all accounts, just a great guy and a wonderful story teller um, over the years. And Snyder had quotes um, uh, about him, uh, and I'll read them to you, about Pepper Rogers. Quote, I was terribly saddened to hear the news about the passing of Pepper Rogers. Anyone who knew Pepper knew what a genuinely good person he was. He was a kind and gentle man who helped guide me as a young owner in the NFL. He had incredible knowledge of the game and was beloved by everybody in the organization. Tanya and I would like to extend our deepest condolences to Livingston, uh, his wife, and the entire Rogers family during this time, closed quote. Um, yeah, I mean, he became, you know, along with Vinny, basically, you know, a very significant figure in the organization there for a few years after Marty left and before Gibbs um, came around. Um, but rest in peace, Pepper Rogers, because Rigo's t- uh, told stories about Pepper Rogers over the years. Um, and looks back uh, on him with with fondness uh, uh, as well. Um, so anyway, uh, Pepper Rogers, uh, c- what could have been? You know, maybe Pepper Rogers takes over in those final three games. They win those three games, go to the playoffs, win a couple games, and it's the begin- beginning of the Pepper Rogers uh, era. Um, one more thing before we get to Ben Golliver um, today. Um, there was. Uh, J.P. Finley put this out, and and I ended up reading it uh, just a few hours ago. Dwayne Haskins has dropped 11 pounds and 4% body fat in his first NFL offseason. Um, I guess these quotes came from a an interview that he may have done on some sort of XM Sirius show. I know that he was on J- uh, J.P.'s podcast as well, but anyway... He's down to 220 pounds from 231 pounds, which is what he played at last year, um, and he's lost more body fat. Now, keep in mind, you know, one of the things that I, I found interesting last year in watching him in the preseason, and I talked a lot about this, is I'm like, he looks like a different guy athletically. I didn't think he was very mobile at Ohio State. And I know that there were times where he was mobile, and he didn't have to be that mobile. They protected him well. Ball came out quickly to playmakers, and they were always off to the races. Um, But John Keim um, also tweeted out, and I remember John Keim wrote about this during the season, I think, that he had lowered his body fat last year. He said at one point earlier in the season, he had told John Haskins had that he'd gone from around 17% body fat to 13%. And John writes, you could see the difference in his movement, some of which resulted in him feeling more comfortable too. It's true. You know, that was the difference. You know, one of the revelations last year was that Dwayne Haskins was more mobile than he appeared to have been at Ohio State. And I remember in the preseason saying, I wonder if he's lost weight or body fat. And then it was like a month later, a month and a half later, uh, Kime had it in his story, and Kime, you know, reiterated that story today. And now he's lost more body fat, and he's down to 220. And by the way, he tweeted out a picture of himself. He looks slimmer. 
So good for him, you know? Um, he's working. I mean, he's certainly working to get into shape. It, it, it looks good on him. And, uh, you know, to have a little bit of more of that, I, I thought he was a really good playmaker last year. I thought some of the scrambles he made, you know, one of the first plays he made as a pro in that giant game, no matter how disastrous the game turned out, was that big scramble that got him down to first and goal on that first drive that he came in on. I think it was the first drive. I think it was the first half of the game. I think they ended up kicking a field goal, but still. Um, he's already competitive. He's already a guy that wants to make plays. He becomes more athletic, quicker, and we saw that last year. If he's even more so this year, that's going to be a, a huge benefit to him. A huge benefit. All right, let's bring in Ben Golliver from the Washington Post, who wrote um, a story about the documentary that's going to air tonight, 9 o'clock on Showtime, Basketball County in the Water. Um, this is the Kevin Durant-produced uh, documentary. Ben wrote about it today uh, in the Post. For those that are unfamiliar with this sort of big picture, what are they going to see tonight? Absolutely. Well, I think for people in your position, you're going to feel a level of pride because you're going to see some history that you probably already know kind of reflected onto a national stage. And I think that was certainly uh, one of the goals of, of Basketball County was just kind of spread the gospel of that local area. Now, for fans who are maybe across the country or they don't know um, as much about uh, you know that particular region, uh, they're going to find out why you know 25 to 30 NBA players from the last 20 years have all made it um, out of the same Prince George's County. And, and obviously the, the figurehead of that um, generation would be Kevin Durant. We're talking about an MVP, two-time finals MVP, two-time champion. Uh, and so he tells his story uh, kind of coming up through the ranks. But it's not just about Kevin Durant. There's other guys, whether it's uh, you know Michael Beasley, uh, Nolan Smith, Quinn Cook, who, who have some pretty interesting personal stories. Um, and, and really, I think the big takeaway from this movie it's about the infrastructure or the institutions that are supporting these players, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, DeMatha Catholic's high school program, whether it's the great, uh, you know, public parks and, and recreation center system, uh, whether it's the, the AAU programs like D, DC Assault. Uh, you know, it's a, a unique community that supports players in a way that, you know, some NBA guys just kind of don't have. You know, we hear these stories about like Giannis, right? He comes out of nowhere in Greece. And I think Kevin's point here with this movie is that he didn't come out of nowhere. He came out of kind of a cradle of basketball that really supported him at every step of the way and, and helped him reach uh, you know his dreams of being an NBA star. You know what's interesting is DC as as a as a market um, as a city has had a long history of producing great players and it, with an incredible high school basketball um, situation and, and we all around here are very familiar with the Catholic League, the WCAC with the Mathas, you know, long run that started with Morgan Wooten but you know the great players that, that came out of the district, Elgin Baylor and Dave Bing and the list goes on and on and I'm wondering you know when this started to become a PG County thing. I know a lot of the players that play in 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 the Catholic League, and, and some of those schools are located in PG County, and some of them, like St. John's and Gonzaga, are in the district themselves. But what was it where all of these players through, you know, say the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and even into the 80s perhaps were living inside the city, and now most of them are born and raised in Prince George's County? Is there anything about that dynamic that's addressed in this documentary. 
Yeah, so they start off with a little bit of the history of the area. They do trace the you know the DC lineage all the way back to uh, you know the, the the founder of black basketball. They call him who was kind of a disciple of James Naismith, right? So you're going all the way back in in history to kind of understand why DC has such a thriving community. What they look at is really socioeconomic factors. You know, uh, you have the assassination of Martin Luther King and riots in DC, which wind up pushing uh, some African Americans outside the city. It just kind of changes. Um, <clears throat> where people are living and, and where people are raising their children. So I think that was part of it. They also touch on the crack epidemic and how, uh, you know, for a player like Len Bias, who's a big-time player from the, the, the PG County area, you know, that kind of ruins his uh, career. You know, it, it takes his life uh, in a very tragic way right after he was drafted. But there is a response factor from that community, which is rather than, uh, you know, getting you know, cracking down on crime and, and criminalizing all youth activity, they kind of have a supportive response with the community in terms of the you know putting together rec centers uh, and, and having public parks for kids to play out. That's sort of the response. And now you have this entire generation of kids who are basically Kevin's age who are looking at these community centers as havens. And he describes kind of his entire life just you know basically is school and basketball. He's sleeping at the community centers at times because. Uh, it's just more convenient because he's there playing all day long. And you know, there's other guys like Beasley. I, I believe he was on house arrest at one point. He's being taken in by a coach, and he has a similar situation. He's just saying, look, we just spent all day long at these gyms. There was you know, really nothing else that we wanted to do. Um, and so I think uh, it, it just it built on itself, right? I mean, you have a lot of these guys who are obsessed with basketball, who are really good at basketball, who are competing with each other and feeling part of a community and just building it up gradually. Uh, bit by bit. I mean, you can already see it spinning forward to the next generation. You've got a Markel Fultz number one overall pick uh, here recently, and then, of course, the pipeline continues uh, from there with even more recent players. So they do try to trace some of that backstory, some of that history. I mean, keep in mind, it's only a 50-minute documentary, a little bit less than an hour. So it's not, uh, you know, don't compare it to The Last Dance, where they've got 10 hours right, and right. unlimited budget and unlimited access. I mean, this is a more focused project. Um what what are the numbers currently how you know what how, how much does pg county dominate major d1 college basketball and then the nba yeah the numbers that they present in the movie i believe is like 30 nba players in the last 20 years and when you think about you know any given year you only have 450 guys that's a huge <laughs> that's a big number right of of any slice and you've got a lot of guys, by the way, who are longtime pros, right? You got the Jeff Greens of the world. Um, you, you've even got the Grant brothers coming up. I mean, some of these guys who are, are uh, you know, sticking, uh, not just you know having a cup of coffee, like they're making real careers. And and that's to me what was the most impressive part. Like I live here in Los Angeles right now, just you know because that's sort of the the center of the NBA universe with LeBron and Kawhi. And there's a pretty thriving youth basketball culture here too. And there's a lot of all-star level players, James Harden, Russell Westbrook. Uh, but you kind of expect it from a city that's this big, that always has good weather, uh, you know, that's had, uh, you know, the Showtime Lakers influence going all the way back to the 80s. And I think um, you know, even some of the, the people who the, the executive producers of this film, like at Showtime, uh, you know, they, they looked at PG County and were just like, how is this even possible? Like, you know, this is, uh, you know, such a, it's not a huge community in terms of population, and yet they're just consistently producing uh, NBA-level players, also overseas uh, professionals, and then, of course, hundreds of, of college athletes on a regular basis. And by the way, both for the men's game and the women's game. And this documentary doesn't focus on the women's game a ton, 
but they do have a couple of interviews in there briefly just to kind of point out that, uh, you know, there's a lot of powerhouse programs and a lot of, uh, you know, good athletes coming from there as well on the women's side. Ben Golliver from the Washington Post joining us. And I do want to talk some NBA with you too, because you write a, a lot about the NBA and in, in, in the draft. But, you know, um, there, there's, I, I'm excited to watch this um, because I think there is sort of a pride that those of us that are from here, and, and I've always been at sort of a part of the basketball thing. You know, I've coached, uh, you know, sort of AAU and, and travel basketball on and off for the last 25 years. And I know the talent that's in this area. I know that the WCAC, top to bottom, you know, Ben, without question, is the best high school basketball conference in America. There are basketball factory high schools that we know, you know, the Oak Hills, et cetera, uh, of the world, the IMGs. But in terms of a top to bottom conference, there's no conference that has the kind of coaching and the kind of talent that's come out of the WCAC in D.C. over the years. And I'm wondering if they really, in this documentary, really dial in on the reasons. You know, you mentioned and you, and you wrote in your story about the recreation centers and, and sort of, in many cases, sort of the physical environment that, that sort of has played out in PG County. But wh- why PG County and not, you know, a, a county in L.A. or not a county in Philly or not, not New York or, or not, you know, Baltimore? Wh- why D.C. and why PG County? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that their basic explanation of that has to do with, um, you know, a rich basketball lineage. You know, obviously a, a, lar- a predominantly African-American population moving to the area early on. And in some cases having a pretty, you know, out, outside the Beltway, I understand it's one of the, the wealthiest African-American uh, you know, p- parts of the country in the world. And, and that helps, too, obviously having uh, access to resources. Uh, but then also, so you have the population first. And then I think you also have the infrastructure and support. And then you also had some people who were really early um, in terms of understanding where the game was going from a commercial standpoint. Like in the 1990s, for example, Michael Jordan takes off, the sneaker contracts start going up. And some of the coaches uh, you know, around that area, including, uh, including Curtis Malone, who, who wound up getting himself in some sure. pretty significant trouble, uh, realized that you know this is a real business. And if you can get the sneaker companies behind you, you can get a, a contract with Adidas, now all of a sudden you can take your kids across the country, expose them uh, to you know talent evaluators, but also expose them to top competition. You know, one of my favorite scenes from the entire uh, documentary is an 11-year-old Kevin Durant playing for the Prince George uh, Jaguars, where he's got the exact same shooting form at 11 that he's got you know today at 31. <laughs> How right? tall was and he? He's winning. Oh, he he was the tallest kid on the court, but not by maybe as much as you would think. Uh, but he, he hadn't really hit the growth spurt yet. I don't think he was even six foot yet. But the same just like step-in move to his jumper is there. Uh, they've got Beasley, you know, feeding him the basketball off of offensive rebounds. I mean, it's just really remarkable footage. And it just shows that I mean, this was, was these guys' entire life. And I think that's a big part of it, too, is, you know, they use that phrase, in the water. It's just like something special about the area. But I think ultimately, like, not every community loves basketball to the same degree. And it's clear that these guys, their whole life revolves around it. There was really nothing else for them to do. And, um, you know, I think that lack of distractions, that focus on basketball, uh, having some pioneers, in other words, understanding that the travel side of it was going to be very important, um, you know, just to, to get you on the, the showcase uh, situations with AAU tournaments and, and on into college uh, was really big. And I think all of those things add up to create – uh, you know, a great basketball community, but 
they, they also you know give a lot of credit to Damascus Catholic as well. You know, Victor Oladipo, for example, uh, you know speaks uh, about the importance of that program, and you know they also trace that that high school back to this idea that uh, Morgan Wooten was completely comfortable with white players and black players. You know, at a very early age, and again, that could be another thing that uh, winds up holding some communities back is just segregation or racism or uh, not being willing to you know look to the future. And I think uh, you know, those kinds of developments uh, help a lot. How much of this documentary is about Durant and his coming up through PG County? Uh, I would say, you know, maybe a little bit less than a half. I mean, he's, he's a central figure because he represents a lot of their major themes. And he's obviously by far the biggest name. Uh, you know, he, it's funny. He's kind of a reluctant interview. You know, you watch these Michael Jordan documentaries and the guy's got a cigar and scotch and he's just going off and it's like, whatever, you know, ask me any question. I'll rip Isaiah Thomas for 10 minutes. And, you know, it's just like must see TV. And that's not really Durant's on camera personality ever. You know, he's just kind of, you know, more to the shy side, more to the humble side. He's not a real big, uh, you know, pound his chest and tell you how great he is type of player. So I wouldn't say that his presence dominates this movie or overwhelms this movie. Um, and I think he actually told me one of his favorite parts was getting to see Nolan Smith and Michael Beasley talk about how they became brothers, kind of both adopted by uh, you know, Curtis Malone and, and spending a lot of time together uh, as high school talents, just challenging each other and, and trying to get you know that number one spot on the local rankings. Um, so it's not a Durant-centric uh, piece uh, by any means. And they trace other history, whether it's the Len Bias story, um, you know, and some of the other, you know, older players, Steve Francis makes an appearance as well. So uh, I think um, if you're expecting a biography, that's that's not what it is. But you are going to get a, a good amount of, uh, you know, Durant's backstory. And for me, like I'm someone who's followed his career pretty carefully throughout the NBA. And I understood how important the Seat Pleasant Rec Center was to him. And I knew that he had donated the Durant Center, you know, the $13 million college prep facility. Like I knew this was a part of his story. But I definitely learned a lot, and, and that, that youth footage that I mentioned uh, really pops off the screen. And you know, just even he- hearing him talk about some of the ills in the community when he was first coming up, you know, he describes you know, kind of drug-addicted zombies walking the streets and, and making things uh, challenging and a little bit scary for them as kids and, and making them want to think, well, uh, you know, this, this cracking doesn't seem so great. We want to go play basketball. Let's go, let's go find something else to do with our time. I mean, those kinds of, you know, fork-in-the-road moments that I think we can kind of all relate to in terms of making good decisions versus bad decisions, uh, you can kind of, you know, see a player like him and, and other players of his generation, uh, you know, making those types of decisions. You know, it's it's interesting. You live in Southern California, and, you know, you live in, for all intents and purposes, an NBA town. I mean, a, a town that absolutely loves the NBA and loves the Lakers and, and to the you know the Clippers much less to a certain extent. By the way, Ben, I, I was saying today on my radio show or yesterday, I really wish we were gearing up for Lakers Clippers Western Conference Finals right now because I was looking so much forward um, to that, so forward to that, um, and I don't know if we're going to get a chance to get it. But I, I actually want to get to some some NBA stuff with you in a moment. But what's interesting about DC is that. It's been this, you know, incredible high school basketball town um, for so long. I mean, you know, so long. And yet, 
you know, the NBA franchise is, is insignificant on the landscape here, you know, compared to obviously the Redskins. Um, and, and the two college programs, you know, Maryland and Georgetown have been much more, you know, had, had a much bigger and more passionate following over the years than the NBA team. It, it's, it's weird the way it sort of evolved here, don't you think? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I asked Duran about that, too, in my piece at the very end. It's like the natural way for this to come full circle is for him to eventually go home and <laughs> right. kind of, you know, boost the, boost the Wizards up a little bit, right? And, and he said at this point, and even during his last free agency, he never really considered it. I think that says a lot, right? Because clearly the, the tug of home for him is really strong. I mean, not only is he doing this project with Showtime, he's got another show coming out with Apple. I think they're actually filming in Richmond, Virginia, but it's about the, the Prince George's County area as well. Um, so clearly this thing is like always on the front of his mind, and yet he's never really giving the Wizards a full look uh, in free agency or, or potentially for a homecoming. It always struck me as a little bit curious on that. Um, and I think that could be a situation where someone needs to kind of step up and do it, right? I mean, you know, ultimately, like, LeBron left Cleveland, and if Cleveland was going to win a title, the only way that was happening is if LeBron went back there and did it for him, right? I mean, they'd still be floundering in 12th place in the Eastern Conference if he never went back uh, to get them that title in 2016. And so I'm not sure that's a burden that Durant sees for himself, but I do think ultimately like that's uh, that's one way or one path forward for uh, you know the Wizards would be for one of these products from D.C. to kind of just put the franchise on his back uh, and, and to go forward from there. It's tricky, though. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into winning in the NBA. Uh, you know, market size matters, you know, and I think that that's probably held them back at times uh, when it comes to uh, free agency. Uh, you know, even things like weather and taxes, you know, wind up uh, impacting some of these guys' decisions, and, and that can work against you, too. But, uh, no, I think, you know, D.C.'s overall hoops community, we're seeing it time and again. I mean, there was a great documentary a few years ago about Allen Iverson that, that touched on his uh, time at Georgetown. Um, you know, you, Patrick Ewing shows up in the last dance, you know, wearing the Georgetown polo shirt and, and talking about, you know, their battles going all the way back to the 80s. Um, and that's one other cool thing you'll probably love from this documentary, by the way, is they've got footage from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at Power Memorial High School yeah. going down to play uh, against the D.C. team, you know, all the way back when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was still Lou Alcindor in the high school days. And, uh, you know, Kareem went home with an L, as they put it in the movie. You know, he wound up getting beat, and I think that's a... Uh, another example of, of how long that lineage is well that that's one of the famous high famous high school games uh in history it, it came in the mid-60s james brown you know the the cbs uh james brown was on that dematha team that morgan woke wooten coach that ended um lou Cinder's power memorial uh winning streak um back back then a, f- a famous game and yeah it was um you know it, it's funny as you were talking about durant and coming back for whatever reason, and I'm sure there's a number of them, and you hit on some of the reasons why D.C. isn't necessarily a destination for free agents to begin with. You know, it's not, I don't think it's market size. I think it's, the, you know, there's no recent tradition. There's, you know, there's the weather issue. There's the taxes issue. At the same time, D.C. is a phenomenal place to live in, to raise a family in. Um, and I've always wondered why it hasn't been more of a destination. But Durant in 2016 didn't even give Ernie Grunfeld and Ted Leonsis a meeting 
I mean, it was never even a possibility of him coming back. And I, I, I don't know the reasons why he wouldn't have at least granted some sort of meeting so that, you know, people back here got the sense that he was at least considering it. But maybe he was just true to himself. He was never considering it. Do we know why? Yeah, I'm not sure he was ever seriously considering it. I think part of it might have been he didn't want to get people's hopes up falsely. I, I know he felt a lot of pressure from local voices saying, come back, come back, come back. And it didn't sound in talking to him this week that that was really a, a serious consideration. I mean, at that point of his career, we have to remember, he was feeling an inordinate amount of pressure uh, to win a first title, right? Because he had only made the finals once. He had lost to LeBron when he was younger. He hadn't been able to get back. There was all sorts of talk, does Oklahoma City have enough to get over the top? And you know, also, he was just tired of being viewed as you know the number two guy. He wanted to surpass LeBron. He wanted to be the king of the NBA. He thought a title would get him there. And so he ultimately made the decision to join the team that gave him the best shot to win and get over that hump, and that was Golden State. I mean, there were other major factors. I think the Silicon Valley financial side was huge for them. Uh, you know, at that point, he had only played in Oklahoma City, one of the NBA's smallest markets, and it hadn't really held him back. I mean, he had a massive Nike contract and some other big-time endorsements, but the, the level of wealth and the ability to kind of spread his wings in the Bay Area was significant and definitely a, you know, a, a big part of their pitch there uh, from the Warriors as well. So I, I think um, ultimately he was trying to you know, improve his brand, quote-unquote, by becoming a winner, number one, which he was able to do, and then also just you know, putting himself in kind of a, you know, a, a major, major financial center uh, in the country, and I am really of the world. Because you look at a lot of the, the companies that the Warriors are sponsored by, you know, sometimes they're Chinese companies, Asian companies, um, and, and that's just a, a different degree of wealth, I think, than a lot of other teams are able to offer players. I didn't, I didn't want the, the conversation to turn towards Durant, but I do have a question for you as somebody who's covered the NBA. You know, there's been, I think, a clear and obvious... Um, cr- uh, there's been a criticism of Durant that I think to me is justifiable. And that has been, you know, publicly he's been very sensitive to criticism um, over the years. And and I'm trying to think of the more recent uh, example. I think there was a, a, a Bay Area reporter that, that had discussed some of the conversations he had with Durant. And one of the reasons he left is he always felt Steph Curry was sort of favored by the media and the fans over him. I think that was the most recent one. And I'm, I'm roughly rem, uh, remembering it. Um, but do you think that in, in that he's such a unique player and such a great player? But do you think that that's impacted the way people view him in terms of consumers and fans? Absolutely, uh, and it frustrates me to no, no end. You know, I think that last year before the uh, Achilles tear, he was the best player in the sport. You know, I mean, he's putting up 50 points against the Los Angeles Clippers, doing it so easily, getting whatever shot that he wants, um, in a great rhythm, he's a completely dominant offensive player, and so smooth, uh, completely in control. But the conversation about Kevin Durant is hardly ever about his basketball game on the national level, and it just kills me. It's always about, oh, he said this on Twitter, he tweeted this, Oh, you know, he's a little bit aloof from his teammates. It's all this personality and, and off-court stuff. And you look at him, I mean, he's never been in trouble with the law once, right? right? Never had any serious issue. Um, he was always considered the golden child in Oklahoma City until he left, right? 
He gets to Golden State, and you can argue that first title team, 2017, you can argue that's the greatest team in NBA history, right? But everybody kind of forgot about that, and I think they wound up resenting Durant for kind of building this unfair super team. They kind of wound up blaming him for that. And that he's right. I mean, he was never embraced the same way in the Bay Area like Steph Curry, even though I thought he was a better and more important player on those teams when those guys played together. I give Steph Curry a lot of credit for seeding uh, center stage and you know allowing Durant to really flourish there. I mean, it's a great teammate. It's, it's great leadership by Steph Curry. Um, and I think ultimately, like, he was there first, so it was his team in, in the fans' eyes. And that left Durant kind of wondering, hey, where do I fit in? If I'm the best player in the world, but I'm not the most beloved guy on my team, that's kind of a, a naturally a weird dynamic that you really don't ever see in the NBA, right? So, um, you know, all of these factors, you know, kind of wound up consuming the story. And I, it was just so unfortunate because he had a real chance to change all of that in the finals, right? If he comes back, he doesn't get hurt. He leads the Warriors to a comeback in that final series over Toronto, and they win, I think he winds up being sort of the conquering hero. Everybody crowns him as the best player in the world, which he had been waiting for. And then if he wants to leave in free agency after winning three straight titles and, and potentially three finals MVPs, I think there's a lot less resentment. But the problem was he got injured. He couldn't control that. He made a valiant effort to come back onto the court, and then people kind of wound up holding that against him. And when he leaves for Brooklyn, it's like, well, why are you going to go join that team? Uh, you know, they're, they're not as prepared to win as Golden State was. Or, you know, why are you leaving? And, you know, it wound up getting kind of spun negatively against him again. Now, I'll just be honest. I didn't perf- uh, personally love that Nets pick because I just wonder about his chemistry and how it's going to work with Kyrie Irving and that organization. I mean, they've already fired the coach um, and it's a new ownership group. So I, I have my share of questions with that, uh, with that team. But I just think, unfortunately, the story about Kevin Durant has gotten away from basketball. And, you know, it's, I think, to me, he's one of those guys we're going to look back in 10 years, 20 years, and say, man, the world took him for granted. This guy was unbelievable. There's never been a guy like him since. He was a huge trailblazer for those big wings uh, with the, you know, with the ability to handle the ball and shoot the ball from the perimeter. And, you know, he transformed the way the game was played. And and we should remember him as, as that kind of a pillar of the league. And I think right now, everybody, their basic opinion of him is, like you said, He's sensitive, he whines on Twitter, and he joined, uh, you know, he had to team up to win his title. And to me, that's just uh, really sad. Did you see the ESPN Top 74 player list? I did. So I, I, one of the things that I was curious about, I, I, was, I, I was hoping that it wouldn't happen, and it hasn't happened, and hopefully it won't, is just to see Durant one spot below um, Curry, Curry at 13, Durant at 14. In my personal opinion, Ben, is that they probably should be swapped. You know, I've seen Curry shut down. I, I've never seen Durant actually stopped. Um, but regardless, I mean, they're, they're right in the general area, I feel, where they should be. But that's the kind of thing that, based on his history and the way he's responded to things, you know, it wouldn't have been surprising to see some sort of tweet or some sort of remark about it. Right. I mean, I'm with you because, first of all, I mean, Curry, uh, his his peak level was probably higher than Durant's peak level. I mean, that one magical season that Curry had was incredible. But I think people forget, I mean, Durant barely missed a game for like eight straight seasons. You know, I mean, he was the most consistent scorer in the league. There was entire months, every game he would score 25 plus points. That's so hard to do. And so I think if you look at the overall body of work from Kevin Durant, the consistency factor and the longevity factor, I would take his career over Curry's. And I also think this is just a tough time 
to be ranking Durant because he's been, you know, away from basketball since last June just because he's been injured and it's been easy to kind of forget about him. Um, but to me, I, I think I would have had Durant uh, higher than Curry. And there's a couple others on that list. I would have had Shaq over Kobe uh, and a few other ones that you can kind of nitpick here and there. But I agree. Like, uh, I think ultimately he felt he had to leave Golden State because he didn't want those constant comparisons, right? Like, if you're at the top of your craft, you don't want to be compared to your teammate. That's just so divisive, and it's just kind of a negative atmosphere. And, of course, I think he could have handled the whole thing better and, and probably done a better job from the press relations side. Um, you know, I, he would probably admit that, too, I would expect. But, uh, you know, it, you just don't want that to linger. You don't want that to be, like, the defining question for your entire career. Yeah, I mean, in, in talking about the list, because I literally spent yesterday on, on radio and on the podcast um, for an hour plus, but I, you, it sounds like you got into to sort of looking at it and talking about it as well. The one thing that I would say about Durant, I, I, I think that, that Durant in some key moments, it, especially at Oklahoma City, you know, when they had a chance to, to close out the Warriors and he went 10 for 31 from the floor, you know, when Westbrook was really in the, in the finals series against Miami, in many ways more of the player that delivered than Durant did. Um, th- that's the only thing that I would look back on and say, you had a chance to take the Warriors out. You had a chance to not just join a front runner, but have come from a front runner and he didn't play well, you know, the, in that, in that game, you know, at home in Oklahoma city, when they had a chance to close out golden state, I think it was 10 for 31. If my memory serves me correctly, um, from the floor, but I still think he should have been in front of, of him. It's interesting that you would have had, um, you would have had Shaq in front of Kobe. My, my biggest, I had a, I had a couple of beasts. First of all, Giannis doesn't deserve to be 27 at this point. If we, if we want to talk about where he'll be in five, you know, six, seven years, that's, that's, that's one thing. He just shouldn't have been 27. I just have always felt that for whatever reason, and it's not like it's been an egregious sort of underrated uh, thing, I just think Elijah Wan is in the conversation for the greatest center of all time. And I, I know that that's not a majority opinion, and he gets a lot of due. I think he's a top 10 player. I think he should have been in the top 10 in front of Shaq and or Duncan, if not both of them. I would have had Duncan over uh, both Shaq and Olajuwon, but I love Olajuwon. That's it's so tricky because, like to me, Olajuwon's sort of like the eleventh guy. How do you squeeze him into the ten? Um, but I'm with you on Giannis being overrated. I mean, I love Giannis. He's probably my favorite current NBA player right now in terms of what he does. But uh, it's premature there. I also thought a guy like Chris Paul, another guy sort of like Kevin Durant, whose narrative got away from him a little bit. Um, was too low on this list. I think Chris Paul is going to wind up looking like, I mean, he had a nice, what, six, seven year run there as the best point guard in the NBA. And, you know, he's all NBA, first team, all defense, first team, basically every single year. I mean, that guy should have been a little bit higher. Um, going back to your thing real quick on Kevin Durant and, and the, uh, you know, coming up short for Oklahoma City. And those were the most frustrating moments, right? Where you have the, the best, most talented player on the court and the ball's not in his hands, or he's not going to take over uh, control of the game. It happened actually at times during the Olympics in 2016, which just drive me nuts. It's like, come on, KD, what are you waiting for? Go out there and do it. And I do think that in, in key moments of the 2017 finals for Golden State and the 2018 finals for Golden State, he really did that. I mean, he, I he wanted the ball. He, he took over control. He's banging the three-pointers right in LeBron's yeah. face to kind of end the series. He's staring down the crowd with that mean mug. 
And again, it's one of these things where those moments get forget because, forgotten on his behalf or his legacy because they just get attributed to sort of the Warriors' general greatness and, oh, it's this magical team that, you know, won all these games and, you know, it's a dynasty and everything else. And there was one guy who was driving a lot of that stuff, and it was KD, and I just think history is going to forget and, that a little I bit. I think in those situations, you're right. And, and, you know, and I have Scott Brooks on the show all the time, and I've gotten to know him a little bit, and I've asked him a lot about the dynamic between Russ and, and, and Durant. And, you know, there, there's no doubt that some of that could have just been, you know, a, a function or a result of a dysfunctional sort of dynamic, you know, in Oklahoma City. By the way, the, the other player that is, to me, criminally underrated um, on this list, and, and no one likes him, but Isaiah Thomas is, is not the 31st best player of all time. Isaiah Thomas deserves to be much higher, much closer to 20 than 30, and he's 31 on this list. Oh, for sure. And I think that he's actually having kind of a nice moment here because of the last dance because Jordan <laughs> yeah. was so mean. To, Jordan was so mean to him that everyone's like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's let's try to put yeah. Isaiah Thomas into a proper context. But I didn't realize, you know, going back, I think he made all-star games his first 12 years in the league, uh, Isaiah Thomas did. And he had more assists, you know, at his peak than Magic had at his uh, at the same time period there in the mid '80s, uh, which is pretty wild to think about. And they're playing at the slowest pace in the league, and they're a defense-first team. So if he had been playing in a different style, I mean, he was averaging some 2010s. But if he's playing a different style, I mean, that could have easily been 25, 13. You know, no doubt. So uh, yeah, to me, Isaiah's got to be higher too. Well, the uh, the other it did seem like they. Ha- no, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, uh, it did seem like there was a little recency bias on some of these. Like The, the younger guys were getting favored a little bit more than the older guys. No yeah. doubt. Not, I don't have a problem with where Kawhi is. I think Kawhi is a two-time NBA Finals MVP and one of the best three players on the planet, in my opinion. And I'm not sure that, that Golden State would have won with a healthy team last year with the way Toronto was playing with the way he was playing. But, but that's neither here nor there. I'm fine with Kawhi, and he's going to climb that list here over the next few years. Um, but here's something just um, to wrap up this conversation because I would doubt that you probably looked at something like this even because you're you're not from here but you know Elvin Hayes for 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 what longtime Bullets Wizards fans like me whenever these lists come out I always look to see where Wes Unseld and Elvin Hayes are on the list I'm just old enough to remember when they when Washington had a legitimate professional basketball team and the Bullets were great in the 1970s. Do you know that Elvin Hayes, who came in 44th on this list, is still to this day 10th all-time on the scoring list and 4th all-time on the rebounds list, which is really an incredible number when you consider all every player that's in front of them, were in, they were all in the top 17-18 on, on this top 74 list. He was 44th, and I'm not suggesting that he, he should have been much higher. He actually is one of these guys that was an, a true Iron Man. I think he's one of the best three to four power forwards in the history of the game. But his, it, to, to still in it today, you know, especially with the proliferation of scoring and three point scoring, et cetera, to still be 10th on the scoring list and fourth on the all time rebounds list is, is pretty impressive. That's funny because I had to do a post a few years ago on like the greatest rebounders of all time, and I was blown away by his career rebounds total and just like his his per game and, and annual averages. 
what about him made him such a great rebounder? I mean, what was it? What, what was the skill set for him that, that that put him above so many other guys? Well, the irony is he was much more of a self-absorbed offensive player. He was a difficult teammate. You know, Phil Chenier and, and the people that played with him, they'll tell you the Big E was not the easiest guy in the world to play with. He was a prolific offensive player. Um, he he could he could face and shoot the jump shot. He would back you down. He had a patented turnaround fadeaway bank shot. He could get to the rim with a jump hook as a power forward. Defensively, he had great timing as a shot blocker. What it was is he was relentless. He was a relentless competitor. He he Ben he I don't know what his average per minutes per game were, but there were nights I remember where he played 47 48 minutes. He didn't come out of the game. And he was long-armed too. Um he had long arms and and I, I I would probably attribute it to based on my memory of him being an incredibly relentless, high energy, long armed player who was never off the floor. It seemed like he never missed games either. I mean, he was a true you know I I, I didn't even, I didn't look this up, but I'm going to bet you that the majority of his career, eighty plus games out of eighty two. Yeah, see that's one thing that we're missing from the modern NBA is those types. That's of guys, right, right. I mean, especially. Especially among the star level players, I mean, and that's another lesson from the last dance too. Like guys like you know Jordan and even Rodman was playing an unbelievable number of minutes in those in those final three peat seasons uh, and hardly ever missing any time. You know, in that documentary, they focused on Rodman, another relentless, high energy rebounder, right? Where they're saying, oh, he goes on this uh, trip to Las Vegas and he was yeah. away from the team, and it's like this huge thing. Those are the only two games he missed all year. He played eighty games, you know, so. Uh, it, it's funny how that, uh, that that kind of thing has just transitioned in the NBA. It's kind of gone out of favor. But, uh, no, I appreciate that history lesson because he was a little bit before my time. You know, I'm from Portland, Oregon originally, so they won their title in 77. Yeah. You know, right around the same time uh, Washington got its title. Uh, I have kind of a soft spot for that time uh, of basketball. Yeah, history, me but, too. You know, it's just before – before I was really uh, alive and kicking, I just um, I just pulled up you know his career. Um, he, he never played a season less than eighty games in sixteen years. Eighty <laughs> games minimum was was what he played. Um, you know, by the way, speaking of the seventy seven Blazers, to me that that's the greatest what if. Walton came in at forty eight. I think those of us that watched him and when you when you listen to the people that played with him and were coaching at the time, if he had stayed healthy, you know, this list would have included him in no worse than the top five. He was that great. Well, it's funny because a lot of the beat writers in Portland were beat writers for the covering the Blazers back in his time. And you know, there's always this debate among the younger fans, like is it Damian Lillard or is it Clyde Drexler? And, and the the older beat writers will say, no, 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 guys, yeah, it was Bill yeah. Walton. You know, <laughs> right. that's the real answer for for the best Trailblazers player. And you know, that, yeah, that '78 season where he gets hurt. I mean, the the numbers and the records that they were rattling off before that time is just uh, it's mind blowing to think of what that could have meant for the you know the entire city. Frankly, you know, Portland's kind of a small town. 
you have uh, a little dynasty brewing there. If it sticks, who knows where it goes, right? Uh, no, well, not to mention that they were incredibly well coached, too. I mean, uh, Ramsey was an incredible coach. I, you know, Walton's one of those things where I've got to tell, you know, people, and I'm not even talking about my sons who are big basketball fans. I'm talking about older people. No, just go back and watch some of, you know, the YouTube games. There's never been a player that's at that position that's made everybody else better. He was essentially magic as a center, you know, in so many ways. Um, last thing, I've kept you too long, um, but you're watching The Last Dance, and I saw that you wrote about something that I spent a bunch of time talking about on Monday from last uh, Sunday night's episodes, and that is the Pippin game where he refused to go in to the game in Game 3 against the Knicks. Um, I, I haven't read your story. I just saw it on Twitter. What was your overall sort of uh, commentary on that? Yeah, I mean, I think just to boil it down, like, no matter how you slice it, he quit, right? I mean, you can't forgive him for, for that decision with the entire season on the, long, uh, on the line uh, in that moment to just sit down. It's basically unacceptable. And you hear from all of his teammates how heartbroken they were by that decision. Uh, my main takeaway from uh, watching that scene, though, is just that a player would not be in that position in today's NBA for a couple different reasons. You know, first of all, Scottie Pippen was kind of held hostage by the Bulls because he had that long-term contract. Nobody forced him to sign it, but he did sign it. So he doesn't really have any leverage. Uh, at that time, the coach was a, you know, a more powerful figure within the organization than coaches are today. Uh, and I just think if the same thing uh, came to a head in the playoffs like in 2020, the superstar would demand the shot. So and most coaches would give it to him. Um, even, even if they don't give him the shot, He's probably not going to sit down because you're going to have cameras and social media and Twitter and everything else. There's going to be a lot of pressure for him to sort of just go along in that moment. But the real takeaway is after the game, uh, you know, he's got some real recourse. A superstar level player does. He can either potentially go to management and be like, hey, it's me or the coach. He could demand a trade potentially, which I could easily see happening in, in the modern NBA if a player feels snubbed by his coach. Uh, and he would just be also, by the way, making about 10 times uh, more in salary today than Scottie Pippen was making uh, in the early 90s. So I just think that the power dynamics in the NBA have changed dramatically since that moment. And if a similar kind of head-to-head -head thing uh, emerged, the player is not going to wind up losing in that moment where his reputation kind of <laughs> gets tarnished and also losing in the aftermath where he's stuck on a team and he still has to answer to Phil and everything else. I mean, look, he's either going to get the shot or he gets to uh, demand a trade. And by the way, we saw this in 2015, right? I mean, uh, LeBron James was in a very similar situation with David Blatt. David Blatt draws up the play to have LeBron inbound the ball for a final shot against the Bulls. LeBron in the huddle says, no, we're not doing that. He scratches the play, changes it so the ball can be inbounded to him. He shoots the three-pointer, and they win. And after the game, he tells the media what he did. He throws his coach under the bus, yeah. and less than a year later... David Blatt is fired, right? So it's just a completely different sport than what Scottie Pippen was dealing with in the 90s. Yeah, really good comparison. You know, the, the, the thing that I thought of was what if 
Kukoc misses the shot. Like, I would love to know, know what would have happened in overtime. Would Scotty have gone back into the game in overtime? You know, what kind of incredible, uncomfortable situation would there have been on the bench when Kukoc and, and the five players that were on the floor, including Pete Myers, walked back over to the bench and Pippen sitting there sulking? You know, would Pippen have gotten up and, you know, said to Phil, I told you, you know, I mean, we, it's, it, think about, you you know, the odds of Kukoc making that shot with a second and a half on the inbounds, it's one in ten, you know? So the, the odds favored that this that game was going to overtime. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's the, the forgotten part about that is, okay, you wanted to drop your play. It wasn't that great of a play. No, you got it wasn't. a really tough shot. Right. <laughs> a guy who wasn't a very efficient shooter at that point of his career, you know? So it's kind of funny, but... Um, yeah, I wonder would Scotty would they have been able to talk him into you know go prove coach wrong you know go show him that you're the guy in overtime like could you try to motivate him that way or would Phil have said oh you want to quit on the last play well fine stay on the bench for overtime right I mean in that heated you know high pressure intensity moment um, you know guys the uh, composure definitely could have got away from them on both sides I just have no idea how that would have played out um, I was glad to hear that Pippen apologized to his teammates I think that was appropriate. It was interesting to hear that he doesn't really regret it, though. He's like, eh, I'd probably yeah, probably said he would do the same thing, thing again. Yeah, and and I think that just speaks to how um, he felt taken for granted the whole way. You know, underpaid, overlooked. You know, kind of his entire career always in Jordan's shadow. And I, I think that's another you know final thought on the Pippen experiences. The modern superstar would never be able to subjugate himself as the number two guy for his entire prime in the NBA. We just don't see it, right? There's different moments where, like, an Anthony Davis will team up with a LeBron, uh, you know, for a certain segment of his career. But to have a true wingman and have that be your, your definition for, like, eight or nine straight years, completely, you know, riding Jordan's coattails, I just think that, uh, you know, guys are so concerned with their own uh, image and their own marketing ability and – yeah, right. At some point, you just get tired of it, and I think that happens, uh, you know, pretty regularly. And it's kind of a credit to Pippen. I mean, you know, we're kind of bashing him for his low moment, and I, and I understand that, but uh, I, I came away with a lot of respect no, for I, a guy who was able to do that. I totally agree with that. Not to mention that he was likable. He he was well liked and well respected by his teammates, and comfortable there clearly except with Kraus you know I wouldn't put Clay Thompson into that conversation of like elite superstar on his own but certainly he's had opportunities opportunities if he wanted to it's great recognition and great self-awareness in a young person to recognize that they're better off being the number two um, it, it's it's a compliment, you know. It doesn't make them any less competitive or any less ambitious. Um, it makes them interest, sort of self-aware. And by the way, the result is more winning, you know, when all is said and done. For sure, and I think guys get away from that in the modern era. And, and we yeah. just saw with Pippen. I mean, after he left the Bulls, and he's trying to be the man. It didn't go great for him. No, right? well, I mean the, right. the Houston experience was not great. <laughs> yeah, I, the um, by the way, last thought, and I, and I appreciate the time. I still think, and tell me what you think. I still think through eight episodes, the most incredible thing about this documentary, and I, you know, I remember all of those games and a lot of the situations, but a lot of it's been revealing too. I still cannot believe, and I had Wilbon on the other day, and we we talked about this for twenty minutes. I still can't believe that Jerry Reinsdorf deferred to this, you know, Jerry Krause. You had six 
titles in eight years, and it could have kept going. On what planet do you break up a dynasty like that because of one person's insecurity? It's crazy. No, it's absolutely insane. There's no doubt. And, you know, for a long time, it did seem like he was very masterfully using Kraus as like a human shield, right? Where he just lets all the players and Phil Jackson hate Kraus. And then meanwhile, he just kind of like counts his money and counts his championship rings, right? But towards the end, I mean, he had to do a better job as a leader of that organization of keeping things together, period. You know, and I understand he went out and and kind of courted Phil Jackson on that one-year contract. He goes out to Montana to get that done. Right. Why is that a one-year contract? If you're flying to Montana to bring Phil Jackson back, bring him back for a while, right? I mean, what are you thinking here? Um, it's just amazing that they squandered that. I actually think it says a lot about Jordan, frankly, that he was willing to you know, spend his entire NBA career with those guys until the, the Wizards chapter, obviously. But um, I think another, another comparison would be if a modern superstar came up and didn't feel like they had – total commitment from ownership they'd be out you know at, at the first possible opportunity uh and i think uh, it's a credit to jordan that they won six titles how they did but yeah there's no question they left uh, you know lots of winning on the table and lots of money on the table too which is the part that's so confounding to me you would think at the very least the owner would want to keep cashing checks yeah i mean it's just it's clearly a different era i mean jordan didn't have a say in doug collins i mean that would never happen today i mean you know that his that the coach that he loves uh, gets fired without him even having any input on it. I, it's been great to watch. I mean, it's been first of all, it's been so well done. Everything about it. I, I'm looking forward to to Sunday night as well, and I'm looking forward to to watching tonight. I mean, we don't have games, which sucks, um, but we've had a lot of documentaries. Um, you, is the NBA going to resume here at any point? T- any point uh, in, in the near future or not? Uh, I think we've still got a little ways to go. I mean, they don't want to give it up. I think the big uh, takeaway from this week is when Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal kind of come out and say, hey, guys, just cancel the season. And then you hear the superstars come out and say, we have United front. We still want to play. And then you hear the Board of Governors call and Adam Silver is, you know, trying to strike an optimistic tone about coming back. And, hey, guys, just give it two to four weeks. I think what I took away from that is that they want to make this decision themselves. They don't want to be pressured into a canceled decision by outside media voices or by fan sentiment or anything else. They want to kind of control their own destiny, and you understand why. I mean, there's billions of dollars at stake here if they can salvage a playoffs for television. I guess, uh, you know, I just look around the country and the death toll is still very high. The testing situation hasn't really been resolved, uh, you know, ideally and there's no vaccine. And so to me, those are really tough indicators for any sports league to kind of get past. Um, but they're not going to give up. You know, they're, they're trying hard, and there's a lot of people who care a lot about the sport who are trying to bring it back. And we just kind of have to see how it plays out. I guess I'm a little bit more pessimistic than the average person probably uh, when it comes to are they going to be able to pull it off. But I know there's a lot of people within the NBA who really want to have a playoff this summer, even if it's delayed a couple months, whatever it takes, they want to bring something back. It's too bad. I mean, we missed a, what would have been an interesting NCAA tournament and Lakers-Clippers in, in the West, and then one of those two teams against the Bucks, maybe in the finals would have been awesome this year. Um, ben, thank you so much. That was great. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, you know, best of luck with everything. And please, you know, stay safe, you and your family, and everyone else, all your listeners too. You do the same. At Ben Goliver on Twitter, follow him, and really good story in the post about the documentary tonight. One last thing before we run for the day and the weekend: 
Uh, did you see this James Harrison story? Um, James Harrison told Barstool Sports Going Deep podcast that a hit that he had on Muhammad Massaquai back in 2010, a Cleveland Browns receiver, that knocked him out. Um, he said that Mike Tomlin, after that game, handed me an envelope after that hit. I'm not going to say what, but he handed me an envelope after that closed quote. Now, most people took that after hearing about that yesterday as, well, that's a bounty gate payoff. You know, you knocked the receiver out, here's some cash. Now, interestingly, Harrison was never fined for the, uh, was never penalized for the play during the game. He ended up being fined $75,000. It was reduced later on to $50,000. But this started in the last 24, well, maybe the last 12 to, to 18 hours, a stir. You know, people saying, look, you know, he's essentially admitting that the Steelers and Mike Tomlin, they were doing the same thing the Saints were doing in 2009 with Greg Williams, Sean Payton, etc. They were paying guys for knockout hits. You know, it's another bounty gate. And the Steelers responded yesterday, Art Rooney II said, quote, I'm very certain nothing like this ever happened. I have no idea why James would make a comment like this, but there's simply no basis for believing anything like this. Closed quote. Um, One of Harrison's advisors immediately told the Pittsburgh Tribune Review last night that, quote, it never happened. Absolutely not. Never happened. I would have known it. It didn't happen. James and I are still together. We're really close during our 18 years together. He would have said something to me along the way. Closed quote. So now, after all of the reaction and Pittsburgh should be investigated, etc., Harrison took to Instagram early today and said about Tomlin, he said, quote, Wow, y'all really comparing what I said to Bountygate? Mike T has, and in capital letters, never paid me for hurting someone or trying to hurt someone or put a bounty on anybody, exclamation point. If you knew the full story of what happened back then, you'd know that BS fine for a legal play wasn't even penalized during the game, close quote. Harrison went on to say that Uh, today on Instagram that basically he took issue with the NFL at the time because the NFL apparently was selling photos of that particular hit um, and profiting from it after his fine. He said, quote, when the league had to start pretending like they cared about player safety, they took all those things down off their website and they started fining guys ridiculous amounts for the same plays they used to profit off of. Everybody knew it, even these same media people and all the fans that were sending money to me and the team to cover the fine. Again, at no time did Mike T, Mike Tomlin, ever suggest anybody hurt anybody or that they'd be rewarded for anything like that, closed quote. Okay, that's fine. Then what was in the envelope? He doesn't address that. I mean, what was in the envelope? He says it was the gist thing Mike Tomlin ever did. He handed me an envelope after that hit. I'm not going to say what, but he handed me an envelope after that. What was it? A nice little note saying, hey, that was a really good hit. Thank you very much. Uh, usually that's a card. It's sometimes it's also in an envelope. 
Anyway, I, I would expect that there's going to be more on this as we move forward. Um, all right, that's it for the day. Have a great weekend. Uh, certainly back on Monday to talk a little bit about The Last Dance. Try to get Cooley on next week. Tommy will be back. Stay safe, stay healthy.